Hey guys, good evening. Todd Sachs of Sachs Realty. I'm the broker and founder here and welcome to episode five of Tuesday Night Live. And I'm really excited that tonight we're going to talk about wells and septic systems. And uh, there, there's an estimated 13 million households in the United States that's served by private wells and about 21 million private septic type systems, uh, private uh, septic systems. And tonight I have Eric Garrett of Homeland Environmental, and I am really excited because he knows this inside and out. And uh, here's how it works. If you have a question tonight and, and you you can send it in, if you're watching live uh, on YouTube or Facebook and now LinkedIn live, um, you can uh, go ahead and message us your questions or comments, and we'll try and get those covered for you. And if you're watching this, after tonight post recorded, um, go ahead and email me at ts at saxrealty.com. So we're going to jump right in and uh, just let you know Eric's information will be in the show notes after we publish this. And uh, so you can reach out to him. Eric, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. So uh, I, again, I am Eric Garrett from Homeland Environmental. Uh, I've been in the industry for about 11 years now. Um, I've seen my fair share of waste and wastewater, uh, also fresh water as well. So yeah, I mean, I'm happy to be here. Happy to talk to you guys, um, put some things to bed about what an inspection is and how septics work and how walls work and so forth. So, yeah. So let's start out. We're going to talk about septic, uh, first, and we're going to look at a, a little, uh, infographic, uh, right now. And basically what you're looking at, and if you're actually listening, uh, I just want to kind of describe what uh, what we're looking at on the screen here. It's basically it's a map of the United States, and it is showing the different parts of the country that are served up by private um, private septic systems. So, um, as you're and, and Eric, and you can kind of explain this, but as we look on the eastern seaboard, it, it, the graphic is really it goes from dark to light. The dark colors are really indicating the higher density of households. Uh, in some cases, 50 to 55% of the households in these states mm -hmm. are served by uh, private septic. So, Eric, explain this graphic a little bit. Yeah. So, in terms of you know our, our country, uh, the, the East Coast is a lot older than the West Coast. So, we have less infrastructure other than in the large cities uh, on the East Coast. And then as we kind of pioneered out, worked our way west, um, the cities were more planned. So they actually developed more uh, sewer systems as, as you go west. Uh, so that, that's mainly the reason there is that we're just we're just older on the on the on the East Coast than we are on the West Coast. So what's a septic system? So a septic system um, is has two basic parts to it. Um, there's a septic tank or a treatment tank uh, that catches the waste that, that leaves the house and allows the wastewater to pass out. Uh, and then that wastewater is then transferred back into the soil uh, via an absorption system. Uh, and the most common absorption systems in Maryland are like drain fields or dry wells. So what a drain field is, is a trench or a series of trenches, uh, typically two to three feet wide, because that's the width of a backhoe. So the, the counties make it easier for these installers. Uh, and then they're usually about um, 100 to 200 linear feet. So that can be broken up into two 50-foot trenches or you know six you know, 40 foot trenches, whatever is going to fit on the property and the health department requires, that's what's going to be on site. And um, essentially, it's just taking that the water from the house, uh, treating it a little bit through that tank and that absorption area, and then returning that wastewater back into the soil. And then what happens is the ground further purifies the water and then it goes back down to uh, the water table. So a septic system essentially is a, a recycling plant for wastewater on site. So, and we deal with this a lot. So as a real estate broker and agent, um, we serve, you know, buyers and sellers both. Uh, mm -hmm. And what happens is when a buyer's buying a house with a septic system, they typically will get an inspection. And these type of wastewater systems, you have to treat much different than just, you know, when you're connected to a municipality. So um, let's just kind of talk about, I mean, there, obviously there's some things, what are the big concerns when you're dealing with, you know, private wastewater? 
So private wastewater, I would actually tell you that there's really there's there's little difference between being on public sewer and, and wastewater, but there's a misconception about that you can just flush anything down the sewer. And I'll tell you that the difference is that when you have, you know, a neighborhood of, you know, three or four hundred houses, it's who flushed it. Like you can't, it was him, it was her, it was her, the neighbor was that. When you have a septic system, who flushed it? Well, it only came out of the one one specific house. So um so the maintenance should, should really be ideally the same on both sides. The difference is when you're when you have a septic system, you're responsible and you're going to be known that you're responsible for what you're flushing. Uh, and then in on a public water source, you're paying that quarterly um, a water bill that's actually paying for people to remove the things that you shouldn't be flushing when when you flush them. Yeah. So so any idea why there's so many more? Uh, it's said to be so many more septic systems than uh, wells. Yeah, the logic would say that um, that it's easier to move fresh water to a house than pull wastewater away from a house. So the idea would be that you'd have more septic systems in areas uh, just for for the treatment of, of that wastewater when it's easier to move the groundwater. And if you have public water sources, I don't want to really say this out loud, but if you have a public water source um, servicing an area, uh, then we're we're kind of less concerned about um, the groundwater contamination, if you will. So there are areas in Maryland where a lot of some of the um, septic systems are actually discharging into that top aquifer, which is kind of where water comes from. I know we'll talk about that in a little bit later, but that top aquifer is actually kind of where this was wastewater is going. So we see a lot of bacteria and nitrates in that water. Uh, but in that case, they, a lot of times they will bring public water in that area. So we're not contaminating ourselves that way. Interesting. So, and with a private septic system, you have to clean and maintain these. So we see a lot of times, you know, they'll, you know, the, the, the homeowners will pump the tank, you know, every, you know, and sometimes not very consistently every three, four years. Uh, you know, we see a lot of times when the inspections come, uh, the, the tanks are full uh, or that they haven't, they, they, they don't remember or haven't pumped it in years. Uh, what type of maintenance should somebody do to a septic system? And what do you recommend as far as periodic maintenance? Sure. So it all depends. There, there's, there's a lot of variables here. And it's a kind of simple question, but there's really no black and white answer to it. Um, every system has to be maintained every one to five years. And that's dependent upon the number of people in the household and the size of that tank. So older homes um, usually have a 750, 1,000, or 1,250-gallon tank. Uh, newer homes have 1,500 and 2,000-gallon tanks. And there's nothing really wrong with a smaller tank versus a larger tank except for the frequency of cleaning. So if you have five people on a 750-gallon tank, you're pumping it annually because you're just putting in so much waste and water that you want to remove that solid waste because it's building up too fast inside the tank. Um, when you have a 2,000-gallon tank and two people in a house, I mean, you you could potentially get away with cleaning it 10 to eight to 10 years, but that's to be responsible. We would say every five years, we want somebody looking in there and making sure that the baffles and everything are inside that tank. And and reason why that's kind of important is what, what's going on inside that tank is there's anaerobic bacteria in, in a septic tank that's actually breaking down the waste in between cleanings. So when you have more people putting more waste inside that tank, the bacteria can't keep up with, with breaking down that waste. Uh, so again, it's it's not an easy answer. It's going to be the size of the tank and the number of people in the home is going and actually access to the tank. You know, if you were downhill and 400 feet away from your driveway, uh, even if you had a 2,000 gallon tank, you should pump it more frequently because a pumper is not going to do as good a job maintaining that versus if it is right next to the driveway and he has a manhole riser right there and he can get more solid waste out of it. Um, so there's there's a couple factors there um, in terms of being a responsible homeowner. Really, the only thing that you want going down the drain is going to be wastewater, waste, obviously, um, and, and toilet paper. So, uh, you know, when you're starting to, to flush like baby wipes or feminine hygiene products and stuff like that, those those products don't break down in, in the tank. And a lot of things that say flushable, they're not flushable. Um, they tend to break down a little bit faster uh, than your, your, your the average wipe, baby wipe or so forth. But but really what happens is they they kind of kind of congeal inside the tank and they make more uh, harder. It's like large blankets inside of a tank. It's kind of a, a weird thing to see when you see it. Um, so you really just want, again, waste, water, you know, and then um, 
toilet paper and stuff like that going down the drain. So how, how do you deal with grease? I mean, you know, in typical household, I mean, even when you're not trying to put grease down the drain, it happens. Right. I mean, just cleaning pots and pans. So um, how bad is grease for the septic system? Grease can be pretty, pretty bad uh, because what it can, what it's going to do is it's actually going to line the, the plumbing lines and actually make your, your, your sewer lines or septic lines smaller. And what can happen is, not only is it getting small, uh, making that pipe smaller, it's it's hardening as it cools, and it it can be a, a real pain to actually um, to remove. So the rule in my house, whenever you know I have a septic system, is we try to get all the grease that we can into a jar. You know, we save it, throw that away. Um, anything that's kind of like you know kind of stuck there, try to use a paper towel or something, to get it out, throw that away, versus actually going down the drain. Just, you know, it's it's impossible to to get rid of all the grease or all contamination just because of, of who we are. So we just really want to limit the amount of that stuff that we actually go to, goes down the drain. Um, the other thing um, is garbage disposals. You know, garbage disposals aren't, aren't, aren't great. Um, they're not bad, but they're not great. And, and the reason why they're not great is when we have, when the solids enter the tank, they actually separate. And we have the heavier solids, we call it sludge, it goes to the bottom. That's essentially the waste. And then we have the lighter stuff floating to the top. We call that scum. So the, the scum is going to be your toilet paper, your hair, your grease, anything that got down the drain there. Um, when you use a garbage disposal, what happens is the solids are too heavy for the scum layer, but they're too light for the sludge layer. So we call them they're suspended solids. And they actually pass out of the tank with the wastewater, which we don't want. So um, it is the 21st century, right? So every home has a garbage disposal now. What I would tell people to be responsible is don't feed the garbage disposal. Um, but if there's something, you know, everything should go in the trash for compost and then anything that's stuck to the plate that can go down the garbage disposal. You kind of have to equate it to like, you know, having a beer or a glass of wine at the end of the day. You know, you're not having 30 beers every day. Um, you know, you can have one or two things get down there that aren't necessarily um, good for the system. But it's, you know, it's, it is what it is, essentially. Uh, so you just got to kind of maintain that. Uh, the other thing that I see a lot is um, eggshells being put down the garbage disposal. Um, that is terrible. Uh, what you know, what, you, when you're cooking with an eggshell and like you crack it and the, the shell breaks off into whatever you're cooking, you can use the rest of the shell to kind of scoop it out because it sticks to it. Just imagine doing that with eggshells that you're grinding up and they're collecting in a tank over 10, 15, 20 years. So it, it kind of acts almost like a, a concrete inside of a tank. Uh, and it's very difficult for pumpers to remove that waste. So I would never recommend putting eggshells down the garbage disposal. So just yeah. talk about the garbage disposal. I know before they never allowed uh, in in the permitting, they never allowed you to mm -hmm. use garbage disposals with uh, septics. What yep. changed? So convenience and houses being in just houses being uh, having them. So uh, in some counties, when we get these records, you know, from this like late late seventies, early eighties, you know, it'll say we want to see a hundred uh, linear feet of drain field. But if there's a garbage disposal, add an additional 50 feet. And that was the health department's way of saying, we understand this is happening. So what we're going to do is after we do our math to determine how large these absorption areas have to be to service this house, we're going to add a little bit extra because we know that garbage disposal is being going to be used. Um, and fortunately now, um, because garbage disposals are a modern day convenience, they just take that into the counties, take that into consideration uh, at the time of installation versus playing this game of, is it going to be there? Is it not going to be there? And and really the reason why they did that is, you know, in the fifties and sixties, the kitchen sink didn't discharge into your septic system. It discharged either outside of the house or into a gray water pit. Um, unfortunately now, or fortunately, all that stuff has to discharge into your septic system. So when we talk about frequency and let's say you're, you know, we're talking to the buyers out there, mm -hmm. um, they're looking at a house that has a private, you know, septic uh, system. Does the homeowner's neglect of having that tank cleaned on a regular basis, that one to five years, them not having that done as periodic as they should, does that actually affect the longevity of the system or the condition of the system so should they ask for cleaning records so again there's no there's no black and white here so it all depends on how responsible that that those homeowners the current homeowners are with the system 
um, it can have a negative effect on the system because, again, the, the tank is a trap that's collecting that solid waste and allowing wastewater to pass out. So eventually, if you don't clean that trap out, what happens is the solids build up too much inside the tank and then escape out with that wastewater. And then what can happen is it can fail the absorption area um, that down downstream. So uh, it, it can have a negative effect depending on how much it's been neglected over time. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So just kind of, you know, explain the visual here. So yeah. the wastewater comes out of the house. Yep. It goes into a solids tank. Yep. The liquids pass through. Is there a baffling system? Explain yeah. kind of like the, you know, process of what happens. Right. So there's, there's, there should be two baffles or sometimes three baffles, depending if it's a two chamber tank or not, but there should be a front baffle, which is essentially a T. So all that water and waste go into that front baffle. And what that does is it forces everything down. Okay. And then what happens is, is the solids separate. So in Maryland, in other states, some, some septic tanks are actually rectangular, but in Maryland, the majority of them, and I'd say the vast majority of them are all rectangular. And the reason why they're rectangular is we want retention time. We want time for those solids to actually separate inside the tank. So, at, so the front baffle slows the flow of the water down, forces everything to the bottom of the tank. Those solids then separate. And then the, there's a back baffle that actually keeps the top layer, that scum layer, in the tank and allows the wastewater to pass out. Now, code requires that back baffle to extend into the, into the liquid level 18 inches. And the reason why that is is that, that scum level actually grows down from the top of the liquid level down while the sludge level is growing up. So we're kind of splitting the difference of that tank there so we can have solids build from the bottom and solid in the scum layer to, to grow down. Um, so when you open a tank, it's, it's kind of misconceiving if you've never seen inside of a septic tank before um, because the tank is always full, okay? It should always be full, I should say. Uh, and usually the um, most septic tanks are five to six feet deep that, and have four or five feet of water in them. So there's usually about a foot or so of air inside of a tank. And the reason is the inlet and outlet are, are, are at the top of the tank, not the bottom of the tank. And again, the reason why that is, is because we want those solids to settle in the tank and only allow the wastewater to, to rise out. So it's all gravity fed. The inlet sits a little bit, you should be six inches higher than the outlet. Uh, and then, so what happens is it fills up to the outlet, spills out, and it doesn't back up into the inlet. And then again, you have those baffles in there that are keeping the scum in, and then just wastewater is going out. But when you start getting uh, one third full of waste in that tank, so when you're at 16, 18, 20 inches of solids, when you're starting to you know, flush the toilet or, or discharge a bathtub, you're actually stirring those solids up and actually forcing them out of the tank. Uh, and that's what we don't want. Again, we, the, we want the solids to retain in the tank and just allow, excuse me, the affluent, that wastewater to pass out into the absorption area. Um, and every absorption area, though, you got to picture that as a, as a filter as well. You know, those, those drain fields or that dry well that, I, that, that was mentioned earlier, that's a filter too, right? So over time, every filter needs to be changed. And they're designed to last for 30 or 40 years with routine maintenance. So, um, you know, I, with that said, I've seen a 50-year-old system look like it was installed yesterday. And I've seen a 10-year-old system failing. And it was, you know, and it's just really it's the maintenance and, you know, not having too many people in the house, not, you know, using too much water. Um, you know, flushing too much water through a system can actually stir up solids, even if there's minimal solids in the tank, and force them out into the absorption area. So what are they looking for when they're doing the, the septic? tank inspection they're looking right. for those baffles to correct so we're, yeah we're looking for the composition of the tank uh so in maryland the tank has to be concrete or plastic um no other um no other uh, material is actually acceptable in maryland anymore uh older tanks were metal and some of them are ca uh, um cinder block uh the issue with the cinder block tank is they they leak at all the seams uh and metal tanks will collapse uh, so, so in Maryland, you cannot have a metal tank in Pennsylvania. If anybody here is doing work in Pennsylvania, they do allow metal tanks in Pennsylvania. Uh, however, um, the term that they use for them is that they are acceptable with concern that they will only last about 15 years because that the tank will, will eventually collapse. Um, cause it's just being deteriorated from the inside, you know, the, the, the corrosive gases are in the tank. And then also depending on where you are in the state, uh, the outside, the, the soil actually could be acidic too, eating the tank from the outside in. So again, in Maryland, it's going to be uh, concrete or plastic or the two acceptable materials. Uh, we're, so we're looking at the composition of the tank. 
we're looking at the access to the tank. Is it a riser? Is it a clean out? The clean outs, you know, that little six inch guy that you usually see sticking out in the yard, that riser, that larger lid that you see sticking out in the yard. Um, the liquid level, again, the liquid level should be at what we call the invert of the outlet. That's just a fancy way of saying, if you can see my hand here, uh, if this is the outlet, the liquid level should be right there at the bottom of that outlet. And then when you introduce a gallon of water in the front of the tank, it rises up and a gallon of water passes out of the back of the tank. Uh, so, um, so we're actually liquid, watching that happen and that's why what, they want to run the water inside of the house. Correct. Correct. We want to make sure all the water, all the wastewater lines are actually discharging into the tank. Uh, and then um, make sure that the liquid level is correct. So if it's too low, it, it's going to tell us the tank is leaking. If it's too high, it's telling us that the water can't leave. Uh, so then it's like, well, we have to figure out why it's not leaving in most cases, or we have to figure out if the tank is leaking or not. So uh, it's very important that the tank not be cleaned about a month before an inspection. So the reason that's important is if you have a 1,500-gallon tank um, and there's only two people living in the house, the average person uses about well, for for argument's sake, we're going to say 75, but really it's closer to 55 now with low flow uh, showers and toilets and all that. But for 75 gallons of water per day, that means two people are going to use about 150 gallons of water. So if that's being home, you know, kind of all day. So it, it'll take 10 to 15 days to actually get that liquid level back up in a tank. And for our purposes as, as an inspector, we actually want to see it at its normal operating level. So it's very important not to pump the tank prior to an inspection. Uh, you always want to pump it after the inspection if it's if it's warranted. You know, some tanks that, that, that I go into, they don't warrant cleaning. And um, there it, you could potentially clean a tank too frequently. Um, and you're, what you're doing is you're just removing the bacteria and stuff that naturally occurs in there. And you kind of want that bacteria inside the tank. So what so. advice would you give someone when they're you know, hiring an inspector and it looks like the tank had been cleaned, uh, you know, yeah. within that so, month? Yeah. So if we see a tank that's been recently cleaned because the liquid level is low, uh, the first thing I do is if I open a tank and I see a low liquid level, I ask one simple question. Do we know the last time this tank's been cleaned? Okay. And is the home occupied or is it vacant? Right. So those are the two questions I ask. Um, if it was cleaned three days ago, then what I do is like, all right, well, I have this receipt that says it was cleaned. It's a very low liquid level. What we're going to want to do is fill this tank back up and then come back to reevaluate to make sure that it's watertight. So the, the way that we determine if a tank is watertight is that we, we fill it up uh, with, with water and then uh, we come back a minimum of 24 hours later to see if it dropped. Now, and what we don't want to do, and this is kind of a hard part because I'm always working for a buyer at, at a seller's house, is we want to come back unannounced because we don't want the seller to discharge 500 gallons of water in the tank right before I get there to throw that level off. Gotcha. Um, so this is kind of a fun story. There was a house. Uh, this was in... I'll say Carroll County. It was Carroll County. I won't tell you where, but we found this leaking tank. Okay. So we show up on site. My inspector's there and he opens it up. He looks at it and old tanks actually came in two halves. So it's, it's called a mid seam tank and the seam is actually below the liquid level. Uh, newer tanks come with five sides in the lid. So the, the, the seam is above the liquid level. So he opens the tank up. He calls me and says, hey, I think this tank's leaking. You know, I look and he shows me a picture. I'm like, yeah, the tank's definitely leaking. The seller had an issue with that immediately, right? So they're like, we're going to, you know, the house is kind of lived in and not lived in. Um, so we actually, I, I went out there on uh, to fill the tank back up because a homeowner said that he sat outside in a lawn chair looking in his tank. Um, when he got home from work, the time went to bed and didn't see this liquid level move in this tank, right? So I got it out there um, and I saw, you know, I measured the liquid level. Okay, we, we put level the water in right where it should be. And then I'm a little savvy because I've been in this for 11 years. I took, we have, uh, we use dye sometimes to determine if a tank uh, or to where water's discharging, right? So I took two dye tablets and I sat them in the back line of the septic tank. So I knew if he ran water, if I come back the next day and those dye tablets are gone, somebody's been running water in the tank. And he told me the house is, is going to be vacant over the weekend. So I, uh, so that was going like on Wednesday. On Thursday, I went back and I looked inside the tank and um, the two dye tablets were there, but they were they were a little wet. So there was the, the tablets were there, but it was starting to dissolve. And I was like, man, that could be condensation from the line. I'm going to come back Saturday and not tell anybody. Right. So I show up on Saturday and the liquid level is low again. 
So it dropped. So confirm that it was in the whole the whole time I was taking pictures of every day. Everything was time stamped. And uh, on Saturday, I go back to take a look. I open the tank up. The tank, the liquid level in the tank's low, and those two dye tablets are completely gone. Right? Seller comes out of the house, and he's like, "I was like, oh, I thought nobody was going to be here today." He's like, "Oh no, I'm here just cleaning stuff out." And I was like, "Well, I can tell you the tank's leaking because the liquid level's low." And I, you know, I explained the dye tablet thing and and how they're gone. And he goes, "Well, nobody's been here running water." And as as soon as we say that, somebody discharged a bathtub and two three hundred gallons of water rushed in the tank. And he's like, "Oh." Oh yeah, my son's in there taking a bath. So they've been running water over over that three day period from Wednesday to Saturday. That that whole time running water and the liquid level is still dropping every every day. So I was like, hey, you know, this is confirming this tank is leaking, and tanks have to be watertight for two reasons. One, we don't want the wastewater leaching out of the tank um, and not going to the absorption area. Uh, two, we don't want groundwater infiltrating the tank because if groundwater is infiltrating the tank it can actually cause backups in the home. Um, if you have a you know family of five or six in the house, you know, and it's rained and it's snowed for, for a month, uh, it can actually cause backups and we don't want that either. So how can you tell when the drain fields are bad? So th- there's a couple of different ways we test those. Uh, one is we do what's called, perform what's called a hydraulic load test. And essentially what that's doing is we're introducing water from the house. Sometimes uh, we'll also do like a well yield at the same time. So we'll, we'll discharge that well yield directly into the tank. Uh, to, to kind of speed up the process. And then we watch to see if the liquid level rises in the tank. So a failure by definition is surfacing sewage in the yard and or a backup into a tank. Uh, for property transfer, we don't use the terms pass fail. Uh, we use the terms acceptable and unacceptable for property transfer. So one of the things we do is we, we stress the system out by putting a minimum of 150, 200 gallons of water in uh, sometimes we want to do more water if the house has been vacant or if it's going from two people to six people because the water consumption is going to be different for a family of six than it is for a family of two. Uh, so we'll, we'll put some more water in there to see if we can get that liquid level to rise inside of the tank. Uh, the other thing we'll do is we have a probe um, that we use to, to, to puncture the ground to, to go inside these drain fields. And we look for one of three things when we're probing. We look for abnormal moisture inside of a drain field. We look for dry flaky powder, which is the limestone that's actually the the stone that's inside the drain field, uh, and we look for biomat. So what biomat is, it's the breakdown of organic materials. Um, it's just like this thick black mat. It looks kind of like pond scum that lines the edges of the trench or that dry well or what have you, whatever your absorption area is, and eventually starts sealing the, the pores in the soil and doesn't allow the wastewater to pass out. So that's eventually why it'll either back up or surface is because that biomat lines that drain field, that absorption area, and won't and it can't go in the ground anymore. So it either backs up or it surfaces. Uh, and that's what we're kind of looking for. So um, for, for the for terms of property transfer, if we, we probe a drain field, we see a lot of abnormal moisture, you know, that kind of gets our heads going, well, well let's, let's kind of stress it out a little bit and let's put a little bit more water in just to see what happens to it. Um, the other thing we could do is we can use a camera uh, and use it to either go in, inside the distribution box, uh, which I didn't explain this, but after the septic tank, there's sometimes called what's, what's called a distribution box. And what that does is it distributes water evenly uh, to multiple drain fields or drywalls or what have you on site. So we can actually get that camera inside the distribution box and see if there's any backups occurring inside that distribution box before it even gets to the tank, which is always nice because we don't want to back up into the tank or the house uh, for the obvious reasons. And then we can, if the distribution box is, is shallow enough or has access to it, we can actually put the camera down each drain field. Um, the pipe to those drain fields. And there should always, there should never be standing water inside of a drain field. The water should just go in and leach out. So if we put that camera going down that drain field and it's completely submerged in water, that's going to be unacceptable for property transfer because that void is, is full of water. And, um, and it's, it's not a good thing. And, and it will soon be failing, which means surfacing or backing up into the house. Yeah. So a lot of these, I mean, this is expensive stuff. I mean, it's a big ticket item. Oh, so for when sure. You're, when you're dealing with uh, septic, uh, systems and and wastewater. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of environmental concerns. We're about to talk about wells, but mm-hmm. what we're really talking about right now are conventional septic type. These, yes, conventional. Yep. And we haven't even touched on. And and you know we could you know Eric has even said he teaches a class CE uh, continuing education for agents uh, on mm-hmm. the topic of you know uh, septic systems. And and I mean he's even said you know he could speak for a day on this, but. 
a conventional septic system is one that is in the ground and and you know there are other types of types of systems depending on where you live there's sand mound type mm -hmm. systems and things like that um but hopefully what you're looking at are conventional septic systems when you're buying a house or you know there's a whole uh, you know plethora of other information you know that sure. you need to to really dive into but let's talk about um the environmental issues so when these types of things fail mm -hmm. and you're a buyer and you're you know getting ready to you know buy a house and their septic concerns or a system is not acceptable as eric has said the transfer what are they looking at as far as i mean you know, permitting going through environmental at the county level sure. what, what types of things sure. would should the buyer be expecting right so or the, the seller or the seller yeah, in the seller, seller as well so so there, there there are different levels of unacceptable right so if it, the, but if it's unacceptable it's unacceptable what i'm talking about different levels is the the um environmental impact one the county's impact too in the in the cost. So if you have like a missing back baffle or, or something of that nature, you're you're probably looking at like a three to five hundred dollar expense. You don't need a permit because you're not altering the system. You're replacing something that was there. You know, if you have a collapsed distribution box or something like that, you know, again, that's three to five hundred dollars. Could be more depending on how deep it is. You know, with excavation costs, uh, and you don't need a permit because you're not altering the system. But when you alter a system, so if you're installing a new absorption area. Or, or you have to replace that tank, uh, that has to be approved by the authoritative body, which is whatever county health department, that that's the county that you're in their health department. So it's it's kind of different throughout the state, but it's all kind of the same, if you will. So just to kind of throw out some ballpark numbers for repairs, um, if you're replacing a septic tank, um, you're looking at five to 7,000, somewhere there for, for a traditional concrete septic tank. Um, if you have to install what's called a BAT or best available technology unit, those are the aeration units. Those are twelve to seventeen thousand dollars just for the tank. Okay, and then we have the absorption area after that. So the absorption area, if it's just a drain field, you're looking at another six to ten thousand, so somewhere in that range. Um, like you said, uh, the sand mound is is a, is a big one. There's also what's called a drip irrigation system, um, or low pressure dose systems is, is another one. Those. Are going to be between 10 and 20, 30,000. And the current regulations in Maryland say if you need a sand mound, they're called INA or innovative advanced systems. Um, if you need a sand mound or a drip irrigation, by law, you have to have the BAT unit in front of it. So now we're not talking about a $6,000 expense. We're talking about a $40,000 expense. So these are big ticket, ticket items, you know, and unfortunately, um, we can't tell you what it's going to cost or installers. You can't just pick up a phone and say, Hey, I have this failing system. What's it going to cost me uh, until the County gets out there to do uh, a perk test. So what, what, what typically happens is we have a failing, when we find a system that's unacceptable, drain fields are hydraulically loaded. Um, that report usually gets sent to an installer of some kind of the sellers choosing most, most likely they're going to either confirm or argue with us uh, what we found. And, you know, we can, cross that bridge when we get there. But if they do confirm what we found, uh, what the next step is for them, meaning the installer, to actually contact the health department. Uh, and then they do a perk test. So what a perk test is, is a how fast the ground's absorbing water. Okay. There's actually two ways to actually fail a perk test. It drains too fast or it doesn't drain at all. Okay. So um, if it's, I believe the numbers, and I, and I could be wrong on this, but I believe the numbers are between two and 30 minutes. So what they do is they take this, they dig a trench, usually eight, 10 feet deep. Sometimes they'll go deeper because they want to see where that water table is. They want to keep the bottom of that water, uh, the absorption area four feet uh, from the water table. So essentially they're saying we want to see four feet of clearance before the water table. Um, and they take this bucket. It looks like a five gallon bucket that has no bottom to it. And they set that inside the, the trench that they dug, a hole they dug, and then they fill it with water and they have a little ruler on top and they measure um, the rate at which it drops. So when you say two minutes, you know, it's when I'm saying two minutes to 30 minutes, it's two minutes to 30 minutes to take a gallon of water. Okay, so when you're less than two minutes, um, that means you're draining too fast. So you're gonna be in sand, like Anne Arundel County, Queen Anne's County, it's draining too fast. You're gonna need a sand mound or drip irrigation or something like that. Uh, if you start getting over 30 minutes, usually you're hitting bedrock. And the issue with that is if you hit bedrock, the water does one of two things. It either comes back to surface because it can't penetrate or 
it finds a crack in that bedrock and contaminates your well water. So there's two, again, there's two ways to fail that perk test. So, um, and, and they're not just looking at how fast the ground absorbs water. They're actually looking at the soils too. And they're, they're, they're looking at, see how clean that soil is going to get that wastewater once it, once it leaves the drain field. So once they have the perk rate and the soil composition, they're also looking at distances from wells. Um, current standards are 100 feet from your well and neighboring wells. Um, usually it's 15 to 20 feet from property lines. Um, the old regulations were the tank 50 feet from the well, uh, assuming it's watertight, and then 75 feet for those absorption areas. And then it turned into 75 for the tank and 100 for the absorption area. And now it's 100 across the board. Um, so, so you have to survey in some of these situations, right? right? You have to hire a surveyor. Right. So they're going to make sure that everything, they can get these setbacks, they can do all that. Um, and then once they have, once the county has those numbers, they go to that installer and say, this is what we want to see installed. The county looks, or the, that installer looks at it and says, well, this is what it's going to cost me um, to, to, to install this. Yeah. Now, some of the other things too that, that may interfere or not interfere, but add to the cost is, do you have a privacy fence wrapped around your house and can we take that down? Um, you know, we don't really have any access from, from your driveway because it's, you know, it's a, it's a 15 degree slope and we got to get to the backyard. Will your neighbor allow us to cut through their yard? Right. So there's all these other things that can actually increase the cost because are we hand, are we wheelbarrowing it up, up the driveway yeah. or are we, are we loading it, you know, dumping it and, and taking it back with a loader? Yeah. So those are, you know, every site's it, different. So, and you know, and I just want to add one thing, if you're an investor or you're thinking about getting into real estate yeah. investing, I mean, this is a big consideration. So we see a lot of times with auction sites and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of pressure on investors that are jumping into this space. They're looking at these properties that are served, you know, served by private uh, septic or wells, which we're about to jump into here. And, you know, they don't do any of this testing. So they have no idea. Right. I mean, they could be looking, like Eric said, anything anywhere from you know five hundred to forty thousand dollars, depending on you know what kind of uh, burdens they're going to encounter yeah. in 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 you know, fixing the uh, the fail. Uh, so let's talk about wells. So you had mentioned, uh, which is a great segue. You had mentioned that there is a distance requirement for installing these septic systems with drain fields to a neighboring well, or yep. even your own well. And a lot of these have changed over time. Um, but let's talk about, you know, where does well water come from? Right. So well, well water comes from aquifers. So not what an aquifer is, it's large voids or cracks in, in the soil that, that can transmit um, and, and store water. So a lot of these aquifers are, are massive. I mean, they can go from Ohio to New York to New York State. You know, so there are these massive underground networks of of just channels. You know, caves like Luray Caverns was an aquifer. It kind of went dry, so we can actually walk through it. So you can just imagine those things being full of water. Some of them aren't large enough to actually walk through. They're just cracks and fissures that allow the water to pass through. So what happens is, you know, it'll rain um, and saturate the soil and get through, come through the soil and go down to these aquifers and store. And that's where we're pulling this water from. Um, so there's all kinds of, you know, depths of, of, of wells. Um, it all depends on where that where the water is, where those aquifers are. Yeah. And, and so but there is when they're drilling a well, I hear a lot of times the well's not deep enough or they would like to have more of a reserve. So Correct. when you're drilling a well for, you know, a, a single family home, mm -hmm. what are they looking for? I mean, obviously they're boring in the ground, right? Yep. Trying to hit yep. these aquifers. Yep. They hit water, hopefully, because their property's worth nothing. Nothing. If you <laughs> right. can't find water. And believe yep. me, I've seen it happen. So yep. I've seen where they've drilled five or six or 10 wells on a piece of property can't come up with water and yep. the property is worthless um, yep. as far so, as living there. So what are they looking for? You know, when you, so, uh, and just to give, you know, the audience, a well can be two, three, four, 500 feet deep. Yep. It could be. So I'm going to say back in the day, like let's say 60s, 70s and 80s, a lot of the wells were probably between 60 and a hundred feet. So in Maryland, anything that is 100 feet or less is considered a shallow well. And what that means is it will be affected by seasonal influence, which means in August, you might not have a lot of water, but the water could be pretty clean. 
because it's not raining a lot. So the, the, the aquifers aren't recharge those shallow aquifers aren't recharging enough uh, at, at, a, at a fast enough rate to actually get water into the well. Um, and then in April, when it's raining all the time, you could have an insane well yield, uh, but you're going to have more potentially more impurities in the ground or in that water because the ground doesn't have time to purify that water. So you can see a lot more bacteria, nitrates and stuff like that um, in, a, in a wet time of year versus a dry time of year, potentially. So what what the regulations for drilling a well in Maryland and in Delaware are is that we want to see um, the well itself must produce 500 gallons of water a day over a two, two hour period once every 24 hours. So essentially they're saying with the reserve, the depth of your well and the yield, which is how fast the ground that aquifer is putting water into your well has to equal 500 gallons of water over two hours once every 24 hours. So it's, 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 it's not just, Hey, let's just drill this hole and hope for this water. So, so there are some things, uh, typically when you have a deeper well, the reason why they went deeper is one, they didn't hit anything in the shallow aquifer. Um, so they're going deeper to increase that reserve, but it is potential that they could hit a different aquifer, a lower aquifer that has a lot more water inside of it. Now, in the case of Anne Arundel County, um, you know, you, you can drill a well 65 feet and get 60, 70, 80 gallons per minute. The issue is in Arundel County is the, the, the county's actually requires all new well construction to be a minimum of 350 feet. And the reason being is that top aquifer, the Magathy aquifers actually has radionuclides in it. So you can have clean, crystal clear water. It looks clean. It's crystal clear, but it's full of radium and uranium. Uh, and then you're exposing yourself to that. When you get down to the 350 foot mark, you're in a different aquifer and that aquifer actually has more iron in it. So the water looks dirty, but iron is a secondary contaminant. So it's not going to necessarily hurt you, but it's going to clog, potentially clog your plumbing and dishwasher and stuff like that. And the funny thing is the, the mitigation for both of those is the same thing. So, so do you recommend uh, everyone buying a house to actually have a yield test or just, I know, and there's two different types of typical tests when you're buying a house. And if mm -hmm. you're a seller and you have a well, you should expect this. So one is maybe the yield test, which sometimes maybe. we yep. don't see. Um, and then almost always a water quality test. Course, so yep. Eric, I mean, your advice as the expert here, would you always go for a yield test? Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously I'm the business of selling well yields, but I, I would. Um, and, and there's a couple different well yields we actually offer through the state. So um, for property transfer, the only county that has a regulation for well yields is Baltimore County. So Baltimore County, the, there is a, a regulated well yield. And what that well yield essentially says is um, if the well yield is four gallons a minute or greater, the well yield ends at three hours. If the well yield drops below four gallons per minute at any time in that first three hours, the yield is six hours long. Okay. So in Baltimore County, the only option you have is to do that Baltimore County regulated well yield or sign a waiver saying I'm waiving my right to that. Um, and in terms of um, on my end and having to actually turn something over to an authoritative body, whenever I perform a well yield or whenever a well yield is performed in Baltimore County for property transfer, the, the person performing that well yield actually has to turn that well yield in over to the county and they keep it as a record. So in Baltimore County, not only do you is this regulated well yield three to six hours, but you also have to be a pump installer or a well driller or, or a master plumber to actually perform a well yield test. You just can't be anybody off the street performing a well yield. This is a very specific uh, way that the, the yield is, is performed. Um, so we, we do have a question here, and I yeah. think this is really uh, a great question. Uh, Dan is asking, is there a minimum depth that you recommend for a new construction house even if it meets the 500 gallon test? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I would say the average well is between two and 400 feet. Now it drilled well now. Um, and, and kind of, kind of why that's, that's kind of the average is when we have in Baltimore County. So if you're, if you're in Western Maryland or the Piedmont region and the Piedmont is essentially uh, Montgomery, Howard, Baltimore West, um, the well casings that are used up here are six inches. So it's got a six inch, it's six and a quarter inch outside diameter, six inch diameter on the inside. Every linear foot of that is a gallon and a half of water. Okay. So, uh, so if you kind of multiply that out, you can say, all right, well, if, if I have four gallons per minute, then the well has to be this depth and, and so forth and so on. So you don't necessarily want to drill this massively deep well if you don't have to. 
but typically I see wells between two and 400 feet. So you want a minimum of 200 feet. Yeah, I would say, I would say that's a safe, you know, safe, safe number. Now, again, in Anne Arundel County, the minimum well drilled now is 350 because of those radionuclides. Right. So, so some, so some counties actually have standards for not even just, just the, the county in general, but there could be um, a section of a county that they're like, we want these wells to be in a different aquifer because. Right. So, so I, I get a question a lot <clears throat> about when someone wants to do a yield test and they're talking mm -hmm. about a test that's hours long. Sure. The, the, the popular question I get from a seller is, well, is it going to burn my pump up? So can you address that? Sure. Sure. Um, the answer is yes. Um, and, and you kind of, kind of look at it this way. Um, if I am put on a treadmill and asked to run for six hours, can I do that? Maybe, <laughs> you know, I don't do a lot of cardio. You know, if you put a 90 year old man on a treadmill and ask him to run for six hours, is he going to be able to do that? So, and the reason why I'm, I'm throwing that out there is because a well pump typically lasts about 15 to 20 years under normal operating conditions, right? So if this well pump is, doesn't have any manufacturer defects to it and is less than 15 years, the, the, it should be able to pump for six hours, okay? If the well yield is 15, 20 plus years old, um, it's that 90 year old man running on a treadmill. So, so could, so could he pass out while he's doing it? Yeah. So could that pump, uh, uh burn up? It, it could. Um, and that's I, an expensive thing, right? I mean, a, a pump, I mean, if you have a 350 or 400 foot well. Yeah. It's all, it's all about rise and run. Cause it's not just, it's not just your well is it's, or the depth of your well, it's the, how tall is your house and, and how far away is your house from the well? Uh, so that you know that could be a thousand to you know two thousand dollar expense usually to, to replace a well pump somewhere in there, um, but we do take precautions when we do um, these well yields. So one of the so kind of how we set up a well yield, um, and in outside of Baltimore County, we do offer two different well yields. One we call a three hour well yield, which is obviously three hours. The other one is a modified well yield, and that modified well yield is sixty to ninety minutes whenever we achieve five hundred gallons. All right. So if we achieve 500 gallons in an hour, we stop. Uh, if we don't achieve 500 gallons uh, in, in 60 minutes, we will extend it 75 to 90 minutes because the, the, the readings are every 15 minutes. OK, when, you, when you're doing a well yield. So we kind of use Baltimore standard because it is the only standard in Maryland for property transfer. And we just kind of modified that for outside of, of Baltimore County. So we can offer those that 90 minute yield outside of Baltimore County, that three hour yield outside of Baltimore County. Um, and what we do is there's a pressure tank inside the house. It's a blue tank. That little blue tank actually works with the well pump to create back pressure to bring water inside the house. So there should be a hose bib or some people call them spigots on that, on that pressure tank. And we run a hose from that blue tank, that, that spigot or hose bib, and we run that outside. Okay. We turn the water off to the house and that's very important. So um, it can be frustrating when the sellers are home right now for the last you know six months or however long it's been. I can't, can't keep track anymore, but there's all, there seems to be always sellers home now because they can't go anywhere. So when you, you tell a, a homeowner, especially in Baltimore County, you might not have water for six hours. You know, I don't want to be in somebody's basement for six hours, you know, not drinking a beer at least. If I'm just standing in your basement watching water flow, like that can be, you know, I don't want to do it, but sometimes I have to. So I, you know, I know it's an inconvenience, but um, so what we do is we turn the water off to the house. And the reason why that's important is if the well stops producing water, I don't want the, the water in the house to drain out because if the water in the house is starting to drain out because it's going to be gravity fed out to that pressure tank, I don't know if the well stopped producing water or if it's the, the, the house, you know, discharging the water out of the house. So what that can do is while that water, if that water is discharging out of the house that way, what's happening is I'm thinking the well is still pumping and it's not, it's actually pumping air. And we don't want to we don't want to pump the pump air. We want it to pump water because when it's pumping water, it actually cools the pump down as the water is passing through it. So we turn the water off to the house, and that's our first step in protecting that pump. And then as soon as we see water not flowing, we cut the breaker, and so, so we're not we're not ex overextending that pump. And then when we do that, we have to do these things called dump and fills, where instead of we let the letting that water flow freely uh, for um, continuously and just taking a reading every 15 minutes, we actually, when we hit that break, when the water stops flowing, we start a timer on a stopwatch, turn that breaker off and we let, usually let it sit for about six to eight minutes. And then, excuse me, turn the breaker back on 
And then instead of letting it flow freely, we calculate every gallon of water coming out until it stops producing water again, and then immediately turn that off. And then we do some calculations to see um, what's going on, you know, with what that yield is. And then what we do is we have these uh, nozzles that we can adjust and create back pressure. And that's the, uh, that's the other way we can actually help prevent these pumps from, from overextending themselves is by, by um, putting back pressure on them. And what it's doing is it's keeping water in that line and, and less air in the line. And that's going to keep the, that pump running longer and more efficiently. So we do take steps to, to, um, to not burn up well pumps. I mean, I've been doing this for 11 years. I can't tell you how many well yields I've done. I've done over 5,000 septic inspections in 11 years. So the number for well yields is, is right up there as, as well. But um, I've maybe had five well pumps go out in 11 years. So, so it is important that you're making sure that the right company is yeah. coming out to do this yield test because yeah. if they, you know, do have the air, whatever, it heats the pump up, burns it up, you have big mm -hmm. problems, unhappy sellers and uh, buyer wanting a brand new uh, well pump, which can be over a thousand dollars. So mm -hmm. let's talk about um, water quality because sure. so many of us are drinking the water. We've never tested it. Uh, we're poisoning ourselves, essentially. Um, what are some of the things that we should be mindful uh, of with water quality? Sure. So um, the one thing you don't want to do is call the office, the lab and say, I want my water tested. Because what the lab is going to say is for what? Right. So we have to know specifically what you want to test for. Uh, we can't just test your water for everything um, because testing your water for everything would, would cost you, you know, 1800 bucks. Right. Because there's so many things we could test for. Um, but for, for the majority of property transfers, what we test for is what's called a potability test. And that potability test is, is essentially just three things. It's bacteria. And we test for two types of bacteria. Um, total coliform, which is kind of everywhere, but should not be located in your well. And it's usually harmless. Uh, and then fecal coliform, which is E. coli. And that is definitely harmless or harmful. Um, so. Those are the two bacteria we test for. Then we test for nitrates, and nit uh, nitrates are essentially farm runoff or septic runoff, um, and or, or fertilizer. So the farm runoff is is the fertilizer. So in um, you know March, April, May, farms are discharging fertilizer on their fields uh, to get their crops to grow. That fertilizer has a lot of nitrogen in it, and if you are in a rural area, which is a lot of wells are in rural areas, that that uh, the the amount of nitrates that are in that's in that fertilizer can actually get down into the water table and actually contaminate the groundwater that way. Uh, my house was a sod farm for about 35 years before it was, it was a farm to a sod farm to, to a neighborhood. And, you know, they were dumping nitrates on that to get the grass green. So in my house, my nitrates were, uh, I think 11, there was a 21 at one point. Uh, and then 11, they, they spiked during different times of year, given runoff and all that kind of crazy stuff. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, nitrates are, um, usually children are more susceptible to nitrates than, than adults. Um, and what can, what can happen is if you are pregnant or planning on having children, um, and you're drinking high nitrates in your water, um, you can, the, the baby will, your, your blood will actually have more nitrogen in, than, than oxygen in it. And it'll actually, uh, the babies are born blue. It's called blue baby syndrome. So the, the concern is more for, for, developing babies and babies, I think it's up to like three to four years of age, um, where nitrates can actually be detrimental to their, their development. Um, but if you're fully grown, uh, nitrates really aren't that huge of a deal unless you have some type of pre-existing condition where nitrates can actually affect that. Uh, and then uh, the other, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And then and the third thing for potability again, so it's bacteria, nitrates, and then turbidity is that third thing. And turbidity is just a, an umbrella term uh, for the clarity of the water. It's essentially stuff floating in the water. It could be um, sand or clay or whatever. Uh, and really that's, that's that's considered a secondary contaminant. It's 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 high or low. And the reason being is, you know, you, you can have a lot of things floating in the water, but the water still be potable because you can drink it. It's not going to hurt you. The issue is that if you have too much stuff floating in the water, you, we tend to see uh, more bacteria present because the bacteria is living on that stuff floating in the water. Uh, so that turbidity is, is more of like the clarity of the water, essentially. 
And that could also be an indication that something is failing inside of the well too, right? I mean, if you're, if you have a lot of sand or sediment, uh, maybe casing that, or maybe it needs deeper casing. The well, the well could have collapsed. Um, typically when you have, so let's say to get back to this well casing. So let's say like you have a 200 foot well, there may only be 90 feet of casing or 50 feet of casing. And especially when you're out in Baltimore, Howard in the Piedmont areas, because once you get, so we have what's called overbearing soil, which is soil you could dig through. And like, you know, just what we see on the top layer that can go down 30, 40, 50 feet. And then after that is bedrock. We don't need a well casing into the bedrock because once we get the drill through it, it's going to hold. So it is possible to see a 200 or 300 foot well with 50 feet of casing because, you know, you're going to the bedrock, so you don't need it. So it could be that it was, it was grouted in properly. Um, you know, so once, once that, once that well is drilled and that casing is set, then you have to um, you have to to grout it or mortar it. And they use a lot of times what's called bennonite. And bennonite's like a really smooth uh, concrete. It hardens really fast as well. But the, pro the issue is if you have, I believe it's a low pH, the bennonite will never set properly. And when it doesn't set properly, um, it can allow contaminants in um, down. And with that anchor that's holding that casing in place is now loose and it's allowing things to go into that aquifer. So not only you know turbidity. Um, but, um, the huge thing we're seeing right now is road salts, um, because, you know, the salt just doesn't go away. It gets diluted and then goes into the ground. And then where's the, where's the salt coming from? Cause we don't have salt deposits everywhere. Uh, and it's actually kind of interesting. I was in a, cl a class a few months ago and they were doing, it's actually Baltimore County. The, one of the guys here, Kevin Kepnick was teaching the class and th there's a map that he, um, of testing, where they're testing for road salts and you can physically see where roads and intersections are without the road or intersection being there just by testing the groundwater on the outsides of them because of how the salt's being discharged into that soil and then collecting there and road salts are particularly, you know, that, that's dangerous because the issue with that is, you know, they, they could be at a concentration that you may not be able to taste the salt in the water. So you're drinking it and you're drinking this water thinking you're hydrating yourself and you're actually dehydrating yourself because there's just so much uh, calcium or, or sodium uh, chloride in the water. So I want to, uh, there's just a ton of stuff that yeah. pertains to this. And we're going to put a lot of links in the show notes for you guys after we uh, publish this. Lastly, I want to talk about what we test for in the basement. And you can probably guess where I'm going with this, Eric, but it's <laughs> radon. So radon, we, yeah. we hear a lot of times, you know, the radon in the basement areas of the house and mitigating for that. But you mm -hmm. can also find radon in your drinking water, right? You can. Absolutely. Uh, because what, what radon radon naturally emits uh, from the ground. Right. So it's just it's our, it's naturally in the ground. It's emitting out. The reason why it's a concern in your basement is because your basement is a cutout in you know, you, you've, you've excavated this hole in the ground, you put your basement in, uh, and then now that the radon that's in the ground, because it's a gas, always wants to take the path of least resistance. And if it has cracks and fissures, it's going right into your basement through your sub pump, through windows, through anything like that. Um, so when you have radon mitigation in your basement, what you're doing is you're removing the radon that's coming up from uh, the, the soil underneath your house. Um, and when you have a well, your well should be 30 feet away from your house to, to, for new standards. Um, and if it's in that same bedrock, the gases are escaping into that water. So the, the, are the real you drinking it, are you consuming it at that point? Uh, potentially yes. But the real danger because it's a gas is actually breathing it in. So when are you breathing in water when you're standing in the shower, right? So you're standing in the shower, the water's coming up. So it's not being mitigated by the air, you're, you're the fan, the vent in the basement, but you're standing in your shower and, and you're breathing in, you're lathering your soap up and that, that, that gas, the water is beating off your body. So the gas is escaping from the water and now you're breathing it in that way. The other concern too is if you have like an ensuite and you fill that bathtub up every night because you soak in the tub at night. Well, what happens is as you're filling that bathtub up, that gas, that radon gas is escaping into the air. And then, you know, it's six feet from your bed and then you go lay down and that gas is now, you know, filled in the room. So now you're breathing in that radon gas um, all night long. So radon in the water is a little tricky, again, because we're breathing it in. Um, there are there are very there's a very limited amount of cases where they can say stomach cancer came from radon in the water. But typically, again, it's going to be breathing it in. 
because radon really doesn't cause cancer. It's what radon turns into, which is another 90 minute class that I teach, but, but it's polonium. And when that polonium breaks down, when the radon breaks down in your lung, it creates polonium and that polonium actually tears through the cells in your lungs. And that's what actually causes lung cancer. Uh, so, you know, the magic number for radon in the air is four because uh, four pecocures per liter. Um, and the reason that it's four or less than four is that less than four is what's considered reasonable through mitigation per processes. Um, it takes 10,000 pecocuries per liter in the water to equal one pecocurie per liter in the air. So it's a lot. You have to have a lot of it in the water to actually equal one in the air. And the, and the EPA has not set a pass fail level for radon in the water yet. So this is kind of the tricky part of it. But so the issue here becomes, let's say you have a 3.6 radon level in the house. So you don't have mitigation or that is with mitigation, right? Um, and you have 4,000 pecocuries per liter in your water. Well, 4,000 equates to 0.4 in the air. Your 3.6 in the air is now a four because it's the 0.4 plus 3.6. So that can get so you over that you four threshold again. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, look, we really appreciate all your information tonight. I mean, this is great. Hopefully, guys, if you're uh, interested in buying a house that's on a private septic or water system, you're mm -hmm. going to find this informative. And if you're looking to sell your house, hopefully you're going to know what's coming down the pike because they're going to get these inspections. Guys, we always appreciate your time and watching. If you're watching us on YouTube, if you would hit that bell and uh, the subscribe button and the bell to get alerts to more great content like this. Uh, if you want to hear more stuff about anything and everything real estate. So Eric's information is going to be in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time tonight and see you next week. Yep. Thank you, guys. Sachs Realty, Maryland broker number 607720, office number 443-318-4514, equal housing opportunity.